Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here as we launch our broadcast today. We're going to be talking about the debates, yeah, or the, I guess you call it the debate. One debate spread over two days. Uh, we'll also be talking about, um, well, I got my Independence message for you today, Independence Day message for you later in the program. First, I want to take a, a second to thank the local businesses that helped make this program possible. Thanks to uh, Gateway Market and Cafe, located at 20th and Woodland. That's my grocery store, and also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper, and they've got a catering service. Uh, thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic, where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating all creatures great and small for over 30 years at Story County Vet. And thanks to Ritual Cafe on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, serving fair trade coffee, fair trade tea, and an all-vegetarian menu. And thanks also to Cinco de Mayo Restaurant located on Southeast 14th Street. Authentic Mexican food at very affordable prices with very excellent and friendly service. That's Cinco de Mayo. All right, so hey, welcome to the program today, folks. So with me in the studio... Robert Burnell, Polk County Supervisor, and uh, a longtime ally of mine on many fronts. True. Proving that Democrats and some reasonable Republicans can get along. <laughs> well, some reasonable, reasonable Democrats, <laughs> one might say. I gave you that opening, and I'm glad you took it. Good. Hey, so um, immigration, the refugee crisis are getting more and more attention because of some horrible things happening, not just on the southern border, but in communities across the country. And I'm, I'm pleased to know that here in Des Moines and in other places, uh, local governments are responding. What, what exactly is happening here in, in, with Polk County government? Right. Well, what we're trying to do here is make Des Moines, or Metro Des Moines, not just Des Moines, but Metro Des Moines, a more welcoming venue for people, for immigrants to come. New Iowans, we like, we like to call them New Iowans rather than immigrants, in fact. But they are immigrants. They're people from other countries. And, in fact, the number one uh, ethnic group that's coming into Metro Des Moines right now, you might be surprised to know, is uh, Congolese. Uh, Central oh, well, Africans. because of the horrible civil war in the right, Central right. Africa. And, right, uh, right. And it's not just Congolese. It's a lot of French-speaking Africans and, um, and coming from former French colonies. Mm -hmm. uh, but they're... Um, they're uh, coming from really horrific conditions, sometimes some genocidal uh, conditions and so forth. And they come to Iowa, and, and I'll get into how they get here in the first place. But yeah, but uh, they're crossing the southern border, aren't they? Well, not so much. No, not in that case. In the case okay. of, of the refugees that we're talking about here, and and some come across southern border, no question about it. In the case of the refugees we're talking about here, these would be more of your Asian, uh, Middle Eastern, African refugees, which number in the thousands. Mm -hmm. uh, and hard to count. Now, the reason I say in the thousands and don't give you an exact number is because um, we don't measure in this country the secondary immigrants. And what's a secondary immigrant, you might say? Well, secondary immigrant is, is uh, different than a primary immigrant. Primary immigrant would be someone who's settled here by United States uh, uh, Refugee and Immigration Service. And then, uh, that, which amounts to maybe 350 or 400 people per year, they're settled, resettled by Catholic Charities and mm -hmm. um, USCRI. And uh, but, but way, way beyond them are secondary refugees, and so they come here uh, from a place that they were settled first. So let's say you get settled in Los Angeles, and mm -hmm. you don't like okay. it there. So you, you you talk to your friends that are in Des Moines or Omaha, and they tell you what a great place this is, and so you come here, and that's that's your that's where you come. So we have thousands of these folks right. here in, in in Metro Des Moines, and they're just contributing so much to uh, to the culture, to the workforce, and everything else. So we How really want to make a Welcoming. How much has the refugee population in central Iowa grown by in the past uh, year, three years, five years? Well, I don't have the percentages. I'm going to say it's probably uh, plus 15 percent. Um, that may sound low, but you got to remember that that's the, a lot. You got to remember the population of Metro Des Moines is six hundred thousand people, so fifteen percent would be a lot. Mm -hmm. um, there's more coming all the time, and and people ask me, well, why would they come here? And uh, the reason we're the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Why wouldn't they? <laughs> well, and not only that, but they come here for the same reason anybody does, which is they they think there is a good life here for mm -hmm. them. There's jobs to get. There's good schools to go to, and if in a, two or three, four years of hard work, you can own your own house. Mm -hmm. If you're uh, 
settled in Los Angeles or Phoenix or Seattle or someplace like that, you probably won't own your own home in your lifetime. You come here or even Omaha, and which is a place I'll talk about in a minute too, but Omaha and Des Moines have similar demographics of, of refugee immigrants. Um, you know, after four or five years of hard work, you can uh, have your own home. So what, what, what specifically is local government doing to help welcome uh, immigrants here? Well, there's a lot going on. It's not so much local government. Um, it's There's a lot of uh, nonprofits all doing mm-hmm. the same thing. You um, mentioned Catholic Charities. Yeah, Catholic Charities is one. <clears throat> LSI is another one. Embark is another one. You've, you've, uh, Embark? Embark, yeah. They, serve the, they started off serving the Burmese community mm. and have that branched out from there considerably. Uh, iCoach is the Congolese group, one of the Congolese Congolese groups, but there are Somalians and Sudanese. And somehow local government is networking with this community of nonprofits. Yeah, uh, okay. City of Des Moines, Polk County, and uh, Partnership, Des Moines Partnership, is have come together to help put up uh, and finance a welcome center. And this was suggested to us uh, a couple years ago by many uh, new Iowans that came here and talked to us about, you know, what would help, you know, if they came to if they came to Metro Des Moines, what would help them? Uh, what would help them navigate the system, navigate the bureaucracies, navigate, you know, where I send my kid to school, who's who who, who does child care, how can I get interpretive services, what right. doctor should I go to, yeah, those the, kinds the, of things. You, you, these are things we all take for granted. Exactly. But, you know, when you're coming in and it's a totally different universe for you, it's there's a lot to Right. Well, put yourself in Cambodia or someplace where you didn't speak the language, you don't know how the culture is, and it'd be the same thing. So we got the idea, resisted at first, that, well, the government shouldn't be doing that. Somebody else should be doing it. But really... Uh, there's a there's a lot at stake for the government to do this too, and I'm talking about local governments here. So Des Moines and and Polk County have come together with a partnership. Who who sees this, by the way, as as what it is, which is there are very few issues that come along that are uh, have a moral imperative to them and also have an economic imperative to them at the same time. This is one of them. Okay. Um, this one, uh, our new immigrants how we're going to grow our businesses, how we're going to grow our economy, how we're going to grow our workforce. They're also great, great people, hardworking people, family people, people we want here. So those are the, those are the things we're trying to address. Speaking of, uh, we're we're economic and, uh, and what was the other one? Economic and moral. Uh, what? Moral. moral. Yeah, sorry. Economic and moral imperatives come together. Those moral imperatives are lost on you, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Cut his mic, will you? Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so where economic and moral imperatives come together, that describes climate change uh, exactly as well. And, of course, uh, you know, we're, we're going we – are, we already are seeing an, uh, an increased immigration because of climate change. Uh, certainly it's having an impact in Latin America. Uh, certainly, the war in Syria has a very, you know, de- de- definitive climate connection because of the drought there. Um, do you see much in your experience as you're as you're, you know, looking at the communities that are coming in? Do you see uh, a climate connection in, in many of the cases? I don't really myself, but I'm not looking for one either. Um, I'm I'm more. I see more of. Um uh, violence and uh, both domestic violence and uh, institutional violence towards women, towards uh, children, uh, a lot of genocidal activities that go on across the world that we would find just right. horrific, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and I can tell you a little bit about that. But uh, and this, and and really, people looking for a better uh, better life for themselves. The same pe- same reason people have come to America forever is because they want to get a fresh start and, and start over and uh, and have a clean shot at making a success of themselves. So that's kind of what I see. And uh, and and you know, the folks that are coming here are taking advantage of it. Yeah. So how does a how does a Republican like yourself with a uh, it sounds like a very fa- uh, you know progressive and. Uh, and balanced view on immigration and, and refugee resettlement. How, how does that? How does your view stack up uh, within a party that has a very vocal anti-immigrant you know, platform? Well, some parts of it do. I don't think. I think most of us, uh, and I, I can just speak for myself, I guess, see this as, like I said, there's a moral imperative to it, also an economic imperative. From my perspective, uh, what I really like about all the immigrants that are coming here, and that, that doesn't have to be just the Africans, just the Asians, just the Latinos, is they all want to be self-sufficient. They mm-hmm. don't want the right, government right. to be, to be right. holding their hand all the way through their lives. Right. Uh, these are our kind of people, I think. I mean, I'm not just talking about Republicans, but just Americans. Uh, these are our kind of people, and these are the folks you want here. So, um, yeah, so but, to me, but, that, but that's not what you hear from a, well, a, a, lot, a lot of sources. The, 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 the dominant voices in the Republican Party don't agree with what you 
you just said. Well, here's the here's the issue I think that I, I can sympathize with. It is that what's what's the number? What's the right number? Um, you might might want to know. You know, how do refugees get established in the United States? Who gets settled here? Why do they get settled here? The UN sets a number every year of eighty eight thousand. Uh, refugees that are allowed to come into the United States. And we know where refu- we know who the refugees are. They're in refugee camps. They're easy to identify. So 88,000 get to come here. The Trump administration has reduced that to 46,000 or 44,000. In other words, cut in half. Yeah, and based on what uh, what information, what premise? Well, based on the fact that they're just cutting back uh, legal immigration. I think a lot of us in the party would like to see legal immigration expanded, illegal immigration, you know, controlled. But the, the to to reduce legal immigration, to me, is the wrong way to go because these, these folks aren't going to help our – and speaking for Iowa here – um, you know, maybe not every state can, would want to say this, but speaking of Iowa, we need the immigrants. You know, we need them, and uh, we, we like them, and they've, they've been successful here. We've got a great heritage of welcoming immigrants right. here. From Republican the, Governor Rob, uh, Robert Ray. Right, the Thai Dom, uh, you know, they came here, it's and a, they've settled and become our new coaches and mm-hmm. teachers and doctors and engineers. They've just been – this has been a successful experiment. So we've got a great heritage of this in Iowa. So uh, so from my perspective, that's that's kind of how I see it. But I think there's – there's uh, from the from part of from the perspective of a lot of people, I think we say, well, what's the right number? Because is it is it all seven billion people on the planet that uh, get to come here and get free health care and uh, education and, uh, and, and everything else? And I, yeah, and I, I hear you because you know you don't have the infrastructure to accommodate. 7.6 billion people in one right. place, but not to but, mention the fact that they're all paid for by the American workers. So, so this is this is where the rubber kind of meets the road. And and one of the problems is that and the asylum issue, you know, we want to take in asylees. Asylees are are, are great people. Have been persecuted for various things, and it's a definable thing. The courts have expanded that to include all kinds of violence. Which you kind of understand that, but at the same time, it opens up the door for billions—not not millions, but billions of people—to right. come to the United States based on those rules for asylum. So the asylum has been almost rendered; asylum standards have been almost rendered meaningless. Again, now, now globally, again, we are going to see more and more impacts from the climate crisis. Uh, at some point, Florida is going to be under Southern Florida is going to be underwater. At some point, uh, it may well be impossible to live in certain parts of the uh, of the arid west where fires are becoming more and more common and more and more devastating and so you're you're gonna you're gonna see more migration within our own country and so i I think it's a legitimate question so what you know what level of population can any particular region sustain uh and that 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 you know involves what kind of local what kind of resources do we have in terms of water land food production housing employment those are all reasonable questions but uh i think uh, i think it helps to to understand where we're going in the new climate era, because I, I think all the uh, all the things you've described—government uh, violence, um, you know, uh, repression against women, um, you know, poor employment opportunities—all those things are going to be exacerbated as these new climate impacts start coming into the equation. It, it, I'm, I'm on your show, so I won't disagree with you on, on some of that. <laughs> oh, that makes it more interesting when you do. <laughs> well, very true. I think the economic and moral reasons that we have in front of us with these refi- with these refugees, both from south of the border and from across the world, are enough to get us to open our hearts and uh, be of service to these to these folks. And that's why I think the uh, that many people from different backgrounds have come into this uh, whole uh, RFP process for a welcome center. Welcoming center, and some people call it an innovation center or a connection center. And those things are all used interchangeably. Um, hopefully, we'll get we'll get one up. It'll be a bricks and mortar center, and uh, and well, one so where people can go and and uh, participate. So this isn't built yet. No, no, yeah. the RFPs okay. are out. Uh, they're due back on the 16th of August. So mm-hmm. uh, several several groups about and as soon to be located on a bus line somewhere where people who don't have cars can get to. Right. Well, that's ideal, obviously, and. Um, we're going to leave that up to the successful bidder a little bit. I mean, obviously, the county and the city and the partnership and other private sector firms are going to contribute to this and help finance and get it off the ground. So, you know, they'll want to have, to have something to say about it, too. They'll want to see the table. But at the same time, whoever is going to be running the center, uh, whatever group or groups are going to run the center, need to have a voice in this, too. So so we're looking at various th- various places mm-hmm. and various things. Uh, we've looked at uh, a lot of different buildings. Some, I think, are too small. Some, I think, may be too big. I mean, there's no perfect one mm-hmm. out there, probably. But I would, um, shoot a, I would err on the side of big because, again, I think, I think the challenge is going to get bigger before it gets smaller. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think that if we make a mistake, it should be on this mistake of big uh, because the challenges will get bigger. And uh, these groups, we want them to grow. Uh, you know, the one, the welcome center that exists in Omaha, which is a great welcome center, is basically a call center. And they have 14 mm-hmm. employees, pretty good size footprint down on Center Street. They do a good job, uh, financed mostly by the city of Omaha and the United Way and some private sector folks. I uh, did a great job. Uh, the guy that runs it's a West Des Moines resident, as a matter of fact, commutes to Omaha mm-hmm. once a week, mm-hmm. back to West Des Moines at the end, on the weekends. Uh, great guy. But it's basically a call center. And the other welcome centers we've seen are walk-in centers and call centers both. And uh, some of them include microloans, uh, classroom settings, and uh, you know various connections to the community, both majority community and, and not. <clears throat> Excuse me. So... So, I mean, there's a lot of different models out there. The, the best ones, I think, are the ones that are more inclusive. I, I think that just kind of goes without saying. But the ones that are more inclusive and have more services. And we want, and there's a lot of people putting those services out right now. It's just that they're very disparate. Yeah. Well, one last question. The, uh, the, the kind of one of the big stories in the news relevant to immigration and the refugee crisis is what's happening on the southern border with these detention centers that some are calling concentration camps where you have, you know, kids dying. Uh, living in horrible conditions. Just any, again, this is, a, you know, some say that this is a policy that's in place because of the, you know, President Trump's uh, rather narrow view of, uh, of what it means to secure the border and how we manage the immigrant population. What's your, what's your take on that, Bob? Well, and there's many others that say that this policy has been in place uh, since the previous administration. And I, I, know, I don't know that we get anywhere really on this crisis, and it is a border crisis, by pointing fingers at the past or the present. I, I think right now both parties need to come together and, and, and admit that there is a crisis on the southern border, that these detention centers need to be upgraded and be healthy. Uh, you know, and a lot of times, you know, we don't like the idea of separating children from their families. Obviously, that's that's a bad practice. But sometimes the separation of children from adults who aren't their families needs to be done for their own safety. Uh, and, and we don't need to get into that right now. But there are there are reasons to do it. But, you know, I think both parties need to come to the conclusion that this is a crisis at the, on the southern border. You know, I appreciate the idea that we need to control the border and have, have a, a, a way that's not just an open border. But at the same time, you know, we've got to free people humanely and, and uh, address, you know, sanitary conditions and detention conditions so that, you know, we can let not be hang, hang, hang our heads in shame uh, of how we handle these people mm-hmm. because lab, they, they could become our fellow no, this, citizens. There's a lot point. of shame there right now. Yeah, I, no. I, think, I, I think for plenty of people, not just, not right. just President Trump, but others. Yeah. All right. Hey, well, uh, thanks for joining us. So we've been talking with uh, Polk County Supervisor Robert Burnell and appreciate the work you're doing to address the refugee settlement uh, crisis here in central iowa thanks for having me appreciate right. it we'll be back in a few minutes folks uh, samantha kuhn's going to join us we're going to talk about the debate and uh give you our take on it back in a minute on the fallon forum gateway marketing cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries enjoy chef crafted prepared foods artisan baked goods organic produce specialty cheeses and hand selected wines and craft beer visit the lively cafe for breakfast lunch and dinner seven days a week Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. For all your accounting needs, both business and personal, contact Ying Sa at Community CPA with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. It seems that tax law changes every year. You want an accountant who's up to speed on the latest twists and turns, someone who can help make sure your tax return is filed accurately, in a timely manner, and properly, so you don't end up paying any more than you need to pay. So give Ying Sa, the founder of Community CPA, a call at 515-288-3188. That's 515-288-3188. Across the Des Moines metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Times are tough, and most people are just trying to make their cars last a little bit longer. That's why you should know about Sargent's Garage in Des Moines. 
you can trust Sargent's to make the right diagnosis and give you a fair price every time. Whether it's a routine oil change or a major repair, Sargent's always does outstanding work. So don't give up on that old car just yet. Call Sargent's Garage at 515-246-8149. That's 515-246-8149. It's important to know where your food comes from. At Hawk Restaurant, that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q table.com. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep, and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Ed Fallon, your host here. We are broadcasting live from Lorraine, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM here in Des Moines, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. Uh, later in the program, I'm going to share with uh, you my Independence Day message. But first of all, we're going to go to um, a – I know most of the uh, reviews and analyses of the debate have already occurred, but, you know, sometimes it's good to wait a little bit, think a bit, and dig into it a bit. And so that's what we're doing here with uh, Samantha Kuhn who's been uh, one of the most active uh, climate bird dogs with, uh, with uh, Bold Iowa. I, I don't know how many candidates you've met. 12, 14, 15? Uh, all of them? <laughs> not all of them. I know there's, there's uh, several I haven't encountered, but I'd say around 18. Okay. That's a few. That's a few. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of them multiple times. Yeah. So, right. so uh, the debates... You know, my, my, my take is that uh, the clear loser in the debate, well, all right, I'm going to say this. I, I think, I think there, there, were, there, there were a few losers. Uh, the DNC, for organizing a debate that looked more like a Jerry Springer shout fest, you, you don't, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. And, and MSNBC is complicit as well. And then you also have not only the, the structure of the debate that allows these, this, this shouting match to occur, um, but you also have this this inequity of um, of time allotment. You have candidates who had as many, and in some cases as much as four times as many as as much time as candidates like Andrew Yang or Marianne Williamson or Jay Inslee. You know, uh, and that's just uh, yeah, that's avoidable. You don't have to have it. It doesn't have to be that way. Well, it was obvious that they had an agenda in mind. I mean, you could see. Poor John Delaney having so much to speak about, and they're like, "Nope, sorry, you can't answer this question." On to the next. Right. And whereas other candidates not only were given their allotted time, if they were saying something that the host felt was important, they didn't. They weren't right. Like Kamala Harris was given thirty seconds to respond on race. Uh, and, that, and that was time taken away from Marianne Williamson, and then in a, not, 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 she wasn't she didn't just get the thirty seconds. She got what was it a minute and forty five seconds over three and three and a half times as much time as they said they were going to give her. And I understand why that was an that would have been a very awkward moment to interrupt her. But you know, there's some. I mean, part of the problem is. But it, wa- it wasn't just Harris. You saw them being. Treating some candidates Which with more k- kid gloves than such as um, I thought at various points they let Gillibrand go on much to her detriment. Actually, you think so? Why? Well, well, no. Like she'd start off strong, and there was a couple times where she just kept going, and then 
oh no, you just ruined your point. Yeah. But well, and she was very aggressive about butting in. Oh, very, um, very. Although aggressive. I, I, I guess the, the the aggressive butt in award has to go to, of course, the guy from New York, <laughs> Mayor De Blasio. <laughs> Not only from New York, but seven feet tall. Whatever he is, I don't know. <laughs> There's <laughs> no way to stop him. You can't stop him. Here comes De Blasio. Back off, everyone. Anyway, I, you know, and I don't think. I, I, you know, some of that, and maybe it's our Midwestern sensibilities to think, oh, that's so rude <laughs> when somebody jumps in and butts in and talks over someone. But, you know, perhaps in a larger audience, uh, to a larger, you know, national audience, uh, that, that to some extent that's respected and and not not considered, you know, to be an offense of any kind. But I I saw it as people. Not, how, I wonder if you timed it out. How much of the fighting, people speaking over one another, ate up time in the debates. Because I just saw over and over again, you know, here's another 15 seconds where they're yelling over each other and nothing's being said. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, this yeah. happened multiple times. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, in terms of the, the the major talking point from the debate, of course, is that Kamala Harris schooled Joe Biden in a way that he's never been schooled before. Uh, and, you know, I, and interestingly, that all got started with Eric Swalwell. I, I, w- I was just about to say it was Eric Swalwell who gave the first what most people would call burn um, <laughs> when he told Biden about his story about the California National Convention and Biden saying, we must pull, we must pass the torch. And there was six-year-old Swalwell in the audience. And now he's with the same person. Yeah, it was a brilliant move. I thought Swalwell went too far by continuing to milk that point. I thought he could have just said it and moved on. He tried to keep coming back to it, but it opened the door for, you know, I mean, Harris probably, I, honestly, she had that. She all, was planning. To, she she was had prepared. that set up. She had that she and the had food all fight that set all up. set up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that was clever. Um, she was probably about, uh, you, know, you know, Booker was the one who challenged Biden on the segregationist uh, faux pas. Mm, and right. I bet he was like, darn, I wish I'd been on stage with Joe. But uh, <laughs> yeah. Harris took full advantage of it. And I, I think, uh, you know, I think she's considered, um, you know, we're seeing a boost but, I mean, her big problem in Iowa, of course, is she hasn't been here much. No. I mean, I've only met her once. That may sound silly to people, but I've only met her once. <laughs> well, considering how and, many events you go to and how many well, yeah. But But, but we really don't see. even have a good feel for her on climate. You know? She's one of those, and I noticed this on the debate. She said, okay, this is my key phrase that drives me nuts. It's an existential crisis. I don't mind that. I don't mind I, that expression. No, 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 no. I mind the expression when that's all they say. Okay, fair enough. When that's all they right. say and they don't elaborate, they just say it's an existential crisis and she's mm-hmm. one of the candidates. She did that on the debate night. Yeah. Where they say it and then they don't say it any fur- anything well, further. Obviously, the biggest disappointment when it comes to the climate crisis is MSNBC and the DNC allocating a total, what, seven minutes one night and eight minutes the next night? It was just uh, but, below seven minutes but, the first yeah, but you had, was it Was it yeah. Tim Ryan who basically ignored the climate question and mm-hmm. moved on to something? I don't even remember what he said. Tim Ryan kept on ignoring every question they asked <laughs> to say that we were not right. working for the working class any question, and I saw it, I watched it again this morning, and it seemed... You're a glutton, aren't you? And, sorry. <laughs> I thought maybe, you know, I should, you know, there were two nights. They all meshed together, but Tim Ryan, just any question they asked him, like, I think it was even like, what would you do in your first hundred days? And then he ended up going off yeah. on... Well, what surprised me and disappointed me greatly was Gillibrand on climate, mm. uh, because she... She, she kept going on about other priorities, and yet she has said uh, numerous times to us here in Iowa, climate is my number one priority. And in fact, after being confronted about that in Mason City, she uh, tweaked her website to make it a higher priority under one of her categories. What, it was a weird category. You know, that Restoring it our have, values, I think. Exactly. And I, restoring yeah. our values makes no sense. Yeah, Climate change isn't under our traditional values. It's not about values. It's about survival. But, uh, <laughs> exactly. But in the, in the debate, she never mentioned this. So, you know, next time we visit with uh, Gillibrand here, we've got to say, look, uh, you said it was your top priority. Clearly it's not. Stop stop playing games with us. It's but, not your top priority. And and the thing is, that first night when they were talking about what is the biggest geopolitical threat, how many 
people said climate change, or was that a separate uh, question? It, it, it was uh, there were, when, when it was uh, yeah when, when they were asked for a, basically a one a one phrase response. Right. Four candidates said climate. Right. Was their primary the, the biggest threat. Interestingly, Jay Inslee didn't, but no. he didn't have to because we we know we know we know where he stands on that. Exactly, yeah. he said Donald, he said Donald Trump, Trump, which in yeah. in some respects actually, especially when it comes to climate, right. the climate crisis, if sure. we get Trump in <clears throat> the second term. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I think if Inslee was asked to expound on that a little bit, he'd admit, yeah, Donald Trump has done plenty of things that have exacerbated the climate crisis beyond anything we would have expected uh, any other president to do. And especially <clears throat> with, okay, the Chinese tariffs and, I mean, the, the okay, so you've got the war trade with China. You've got the Iran situation, which yeah. is a mess. We get into a war, no one will talk about climate change, but the yeah. war will... Not be or the the world will suffer well, incredibly. Let's, let's, let's hope that doesn't happen. But yeah, I mean we've got we got a, a big enough plate of uh, problems to to dig into yeah. already. So um, <clears throat> back to the debate. I think um, I think basically Joe Biden is on the way out. Oh, even though he's still planning to come to Iowa. Uh, I I, th- I think really it's it's just all downhill for Joe from here. Yeah, as, as <laughs> I don't see how how as, he recovers. As uh, one of my coworkers' daughters said at uh, the de- after the debate, Joe Biden just got canceled. <laughs> canceled, <laughs> as if he were a TV show. <laughs> he just got canceled in his Oops. first season. Yeah. Well, no, it's his third season. <laughs> Good point. He just um, and he got canceled in the first two seasons too. Ouch. Yeah, um, yeah. They keep on trying to bring him back. But you know, the, the 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 establishment within the party is looking for a successor already, and I think, I think, I, you know, I think right now they're trying to decide. Is, is Buttigieg the guy we can live with? Is Kamala Harris the, the, the torchbearer we want up front? Who's not going to—I mean, again, the Democratic Party is all about status quo politics. They want to do something— The they, thing is, we can no longer have status quo. the problem? Quo. I know. I know. Politics. If we, have, if we continue to do politics the way they've been going, everything has been going yeah. downhill yeah. for the past, you know, tw- I. It, 20 years most def- quickly and most yeah. definitely. And and I'm not even talking about just climate change. Climate yeah. change, yeah, yes. Income inequality, uh, crumbling infrastructure, you name it. Yeah. Well, you know, white supremacists coming back yeah. and who having thought, a vote. Who thought they would make a revival? But yeah. I mean, they're allowed to vote as American citizens, but to have a political platform of you're not my color, that means... Sorry. Okay, come a little closer. Um, it, you're not my color. That means I don't want you to be around. Yeah. So, hey, back to the debate. Um, you know, uh, I would say I think I think Tulsi Gabbard uh, did very well. She did. E- even though, again, this is not about her case. She didn't really talk much about climate. But no. she distinguished herself in terms of foreign policy. And part of it was because she read Tim Riot, Tim Ryan, the Riot, Riot Act, Act, on his, you know, mischaracterization of who was responsible for 9-11. But, um, you know, one, one measurement, I, I think, instead of, uh, you, you know, you can read the pundits and the people like us and, uh, <laughs> and the national pundits and look at Twitter. But I think a really good measurement of a candidate's impact is how often they were searched on Google. And Tulsi Gabbard won that competition. Yes. And so did Marianne Williamson. Now, it might not all be favorable for Marianne Williamson. People might have been saying, wow, who is this and what the heck is she talking about? But I think, um, I think for the most part, um, she also got a boost. Um, I think she got a boost because people were finally like, oh, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. And she did say uh, some good things. At the same time... On the battlefield, she would use love versus hate against Trump. I can see Trump attacking that with his with hate, with hate and winning. Well, well yes, I don't know. You know, no, I, well, I, the way he makes fun of people yeah. is well, yeah, he's terrible. About he's that. terrible about that, and anything that he considers yeah. squishy, yeah. he will attack. Even yeah, I think it's going to take somebody who's out of the box to to beat Donald Trump and. And Marion Williamson is certainly out of the box, but she, she might be too far out of the box. Uh, you know, um, again, I think Tulsi Gabbard 
did well. I think, uh, yeah, all right, so, uh, and Kamala Harris obviously did well. Oh, yes. Uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, I think... I think Bernie I, Sanders mm. both did fantastic and terrible at the same time. And I, what I mean by that is I clearly his ideas are what are, are now driving the agenda. Obviously. Uh, yeah, his, it's, it's, it's his agenda that's out there. Everybody um, started adopting <clears throat> it from the beginning of this election cycle. And part of our challenge is to sort out which candidates mean it sincerely and which are just playing, playing it because it's politically expedient to do so. Yeah, but I think I think you know. To me, Sanders sounded more like he was at a campaign rally than at a debate, yes. and there's yes. a big difference. And you need to rise to the occasion of a debate, even though it's hard to do. I mean, I, granted, it's really hard to do a debate when you've got ten people on stage. But at the same time, I heard the same <laughs> things from Great Uncle Bernie, as I like to call him. He reminds me Crazy of Uncle my Joe. no, no, no. He he reminds me of my my. Uh, Jewish great uncle who was a judge, so I just call him my, my uncle Bernie. Um, and Bernie was just—I've been to maybe three, four political events with him, and I was hearing the same things without any explanation of how we're going to do it. Yeah. And so, yes, it sounded. It, it sounded got, like campaigning to you because but, yeah. yes, but we haven't heard it yet. But, and again, we have a little time left here. Just I, I, maybe you have other candidates you want to comment on. I want to comment on Andrew Yang, who is pretty much a non-entity. He didn't hardly speak, and, and I, when he I did, feel, I feel badly for him again. And his basically non-performance <clears throat> is not an indictment of him at all. It's an indictment of this of the this system. process. This process is non-workable. I mean, there's no reason that Andrew Yang should get about, you know, just over two minutes, whatever it was, of talking time. And, uh, you know, Joe Biden, 12 minutes or whatever it was. It's, 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 it, there's no reason. That doesn't have to happen. If you have debate moderators who are trying to operate a fair, uh, a fair ship, that, that shouldn't happen. Well, so I, I don't fault Yang for that, but I, I, I don't think, I think it hurt his campaign. Yeah, I think it hurt his campaign because he wasn't fighting as much, which is sad that you have to put yourself out and be aggressive in a debate. I I think Castro did uh, did himself a favor. Oh, he did, and usually he's he's more of a shy guy. At O'Rourke's expense. (laughs) Oh well, watching watching the Texas boys, as I called them, like it was obvious that the Texas boys do not like each other (laughs) at all, and that Castro and Booker are definitely friends. Yeah. I mean, you could you could see some of the interpersonal yeah. relationships there on yeah. the debate stage. Well, and I, I think O'Rourke hurt hurt himself. I mean, even without Castro's assistance, I think O'Rourke hurt himself by having um, you know kind of mealy mouthed responses to questions that really should be fairly simple and straightforward. But he can't. And, and the Spanish thing just seemed pandering. It was the Spanish thing. That night, it was all pandering. It was who can speak the most Spanish. I, wanted, I was waiting to hear somebody speak another foreign language, maybe French. Yeah, no kidding. All these Congolese refugees. Come on. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it, uh, but I did, that first night, it just felt like everyone who had any Spanish wanted to show it off. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I, you know... Okay, that's nice. I'm glad on your CV it says Spanish, you know, <laughs> poor or moderate speaker. <laughs> but this is a debate. Yeah. We have timing. Why are you repeating the same things in yeah. another language? So I would say well, one, one more candidate that struck me as, uh, as of interest was de Blasio. Because uh, I don't think most, I mean. I, I actually, he's one of the ones I haven't seen. Everyone that was up on the stage that night. I had seen, I had except for Michael Bennett. I had my picture taken with de Blasio, and I couldn't believe how short I look. Anyway, oh, uh, <laughs> well, well, I, I saw him at the Hall of Fame reception, and he is taller than J.D. Shulton. I know. That's, we that, we that were amazed. Yes, yes, we were yes. like, oh, my God, someone is taller than J.D. Yeah. So, anyway, I, I thought de Blasio, again, I, I thought he both helped and hurt. And this, maybe this is about the Midwesterner to me. I, it, it, he was He was very... Um, he, he interrupted a lot, um, and that came off to me wrong. But he also was able to insert himself, and and what he did say was, I thought, reasonably powerful. And I I don't know him well enough to know if it's sincere or or positioning, but um, I thought I thought he did himself a favor or two in the debates. 
I thought that the, I agree that the debates made him more of a name than he was pr- previously. Mm. But speaking as a historian, all I could think of was, okay, where was the Gilded Age headquartered? New York <laughs> City, and we in, in the 1890s. And right. where is the biggest inequality still? New York City. Oh really? And oh yeah, I mean it, it's still they they even mentioned it. I on thought the it debate. was Boston. <laughs> no, no, it was always New York, right. and um, that in itself, like no one's been able to solve that problem, mm. but. Yeah. We'll All right. See. So, yeah, it's. Uh, I, I think. I think there are candidates who are pretty much done. Bennett, Ryan, yeah, Hickenlooper. We'll see. the The field may not narrow. Hickenlooper kept on talking about socialism when there's only one on well, stage. And he's a democratic socialist, whatever that means. Anyway, and he's anyway. not even. He's actually a social democrat, but well, it, yeah. you have to look up poli side terms and understand that. To and say and now, that. now we switch. I, I mean, I'm not sure what's happening else from the country. We have a ton of activity over the 4th of July break here in Iowa and leading up to some pretty big events, the the Progress Iowa Corn Feed, or because they only give you a little bit of corn, I call it the Progress Iowa Corn Nibble. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also uh, a series of ARP debates or forums rather coming up. And there's a state fair where every candidate will presumably take take advantage of the uh, soapbox that happens there. You know, but I think or they start... take advantage of a helicopter they own to give oh, kids rides. You mean uh, Donald Trump, right, right? Yeah. Yeah, the only two candidates <laughs> not to do the soapbox 4 years ago, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Hillary, that was a huge mistake. Donald right. Trump that I mean, I think, unfortunately, that won him a whole lot of, vote, of votes. Oh, I, I don't know about my that. kid. Oh, come on. How many people were like, my kid not had many, a great ride. Not many kids got to do uh, do that. But yeah, anyway. So anyway, debates. Glad it's over. I, I, I dread it the, the next round, but we'll see. Maybe they'll work out some of the kinks, including some of the technical problems. I really hope so. And also, maybe by that time, there'll be fewer candidates. We can only hope. Just because <laughs> at this, I mean, honestly, if they, you should should really have no more than five or six people. Maybe in we advance. should start going to some of these candidates' events and say, yes, I have a question. Will you please drop out? <laughs> yes. Like, you're just doing damage to us. The first person we'd go to, of course, would be Biden. Well, yes, Biden. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> All right, hey, so uh, Samantha Kuhn here with me in the studio as we kind of have a little fun uh, debriefing the debates. Uh, I'll be back in a couple minutes, folks. So I've got to talk about, I'm going to share my Independence Day message with you here on the Fallon Forum. Fallon Forum. Folks, this is Ed Fallon. For those who are listening on our community-owned stations, stick around. But first, I want to take a second to shout out to some of the local businesses that help make this program possible. Uh, thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe at 20th and Woodland, my grocery store, and a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant in Des Moines East Village, where 90% of the food served comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Hawk also has a booth at the, uh, at the uh, farmer's market serving 100% Iowa vegetarian, no, sorry, vegetarian and meat uh, breakfast wraps. There we go. Thanks also to Sergeant's Garage, located on 6th and College, where they've been fixing mild beaters for over 20 years. <laughs> and thanks to Diversity Insurance, located on 1541 East Grand. No appointment needed, folks. Just stop in. That's Diversity Insurance. And finally, thanks to Community CPA, with offices in Des Moines and Iowa City. Tax and accounting season, well, tax season is over. Accounting season goes on. Give Yingsa at Community CPA a shout to get your, yourself set up for high-quality service. All right, folks, um, welcome back to the program. Again, thanks for tuning in. And, again, if you're listening on our community-owned stations, we'll be back with uh, an additional segment. Um, okay, so um, I want to share with you uh, a chapter, just part of a chapter from my book about um, – about Independence Day, because five years ago, on Independence Day, we, um, on the Great March for Climate Action, walked through the small town of Culbertson, Nebraska. Here's what I wrote. Culbertson, a town of 600, swells to several thousand people for its annual Independence Day celebration. We are thrilled to have been invited to, in, to join the parade. Some of us play instruments and sing. 
while others carry signs and a banner. Folks along the parade route seem genuinely receptive, or at least politely amused, and we connect with our biggest audience since Los Angeles. After the parade, I immerse myself in Culbertson's holiday fun. I watch the horseshoe competition for a bit, then stumble on a luncheon to raise funds for the new library. I drop ten bucks for a modest meal and grab a seat at one of the tables, striking, striking up a conversation with a woman who introduces herself as Corky Krizik. She and her family live in McCook, and they saw us in the parade. Corky's got the usual questions about shoes and weather, and then asks, Have you lost much weight? Yeah, dropping 24 pounds in the first two months was one of the, was, was one of the biggest surprises, I tell her. I rip through calories like a twister through a cornfield, and I'm craving meat like there's only one pig and one cow left on the entire planet. Well, when you get to McCook tomorrow, you'll be only a few blocks from our place, says Corky. Stop by and I'll make you a big steak dinner. I thank Corky, then wander around for another couple hours, reveling in the nostalgia of all that's good and wholesome about America, family, food, fun, and a robust love of land and country. I think about the myriad ways in which everyone here, each of these several thousand people, need each other, how their lives are woven together in so many essential ways. July 4 is not so much a celebration of America's independence as it is Americans' interdependence. Perhaps that little girl in the red dress over there, the one darting around the playground with her friends, perhaps she will only overcome her learning disability with the after-school reading program at the new library. Perhaps that old farmer I saw tossing ringer after ringer at the horseshoe competition. Perhaps he had an accident last fall and was only able to get his crops in with the help of his neighbors. Perhaps the climate march wouldn't have even made it out of California without the kindness and support of hundreds of people. Yeah, I'm certain of that. Sure, Americans should celebrate winning our independence from England, even though things probably would have turned out about the same whether we'd fought a war or followed the more diplomatic path of our Canadian neighbors. Sure, we should celebrate the fact that, over the course of 238 years, no foreign power has come close to invading our country and subjugating our people. But meanwhile, we've bought the notion that independence means being able to do whatever we want, whenever we want, without anybody's help. The percentage of Americans who now live by themselves has swelled from 5% in the 1920s to 27% today. That's not independence. That's isolation. That's the face of loneliness. And though it may be hard to measure, those who study these sorts of things claim loneliness has increased dramatically over the past 20 years. On July 4, we celebrate our independence from foreign powers. The rest of the year, we celebrate our independence from each other. Meanwhile, we fail to notice that America has succumbed to a gradual invasion, a more sidious subjugation, through the clever manipulation of laws by greedy men, yeah, mostly men, and our own complacency. National chains and big corporations now dominate our economy. It's increasingly difficult, almost impossible in some professions, for hardworking men and women to harness their talent, energy, and passion to realize the American dream and earn a living as a farmer, business owner, or entrepreneur not beholden to some distant corporate overlord. While we cheer the parade vehicles made in Japan, wave our tiny flags made in China, and catch little pieces of candy made in Mexico, the wealthy and powerful quietly consolidate their control over our lives. They do this in large part through buying off America's political leadership, both Democratic and Republican, and solidifying their control of our lives through manipulative advertising. We fail to notice that this unholy alliance of corporate and governmental power has eviscerated antitrust laws, gutted protections against the formation of monopolies, allowed foreign corporations to buy our farmland, and enacted trade treaties that ship our jobs and factories overseas. When the powerful interests that benefit from these laws run aground because of their own greed and stupidity, our politicians simply provide taxpayer-financed bailouts to banks, car manufacturers, and other industries deemed too big to fail. The way out of this loss of independence is through recognizing, celebrating, and building 
upon our essential interdependence, buying our food from farmers we know and trust, supporting businesses owned by people who live and work in our town, using cash instead of credit cards since the small business owner in the middle gets dinged badly by the credit card company, doing more with barter. The long road that led us from America's former independence to our current dependence is our only hope if we are to win both the race against climate change and the struggle to regain our democracy. That's from my book, March Your Walker Pilgrim. This is Ed Fallon, your host. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Dr. Charles Goldman with me in the studio here. It's good to be here. You know what else we can't seem to get rid of is Dakota Access. Uh, you, just when you think the whole thing is settled, they've built their pipeline, they're pumping their 570,000 barrels of oil a day, they come back and say they want to double the amount of oil. Now, they haven't told the Iowa Utilities Board they want to double it, but that information came out during a hearing before the Illinois Commerce Commission. Interestingly, the pipeline company came to the Utilities Board and said, we don't need your permission, but just because we're nice guys, we're going to tell you what our plans are. And our plans are to drastically in increase the, the oil flow by making changes to the pumping station at Cambridge uh, in Story County, just mm -hmm. south of Ames, just north of Des Moines. But in Illinois, they came and asked, asked for permission. So during that conversation in Illinois, it was revealed that their intent is to pump 1 million point one, 1 1.1 million uh, barrels a day through the pipeline. That's a huge increase. Right. Huge increase. And so um, Bold Iowa challenged the uh, utilities board saying, look, uh, we think there ought to be a public hearing on this, and we think there's a bunch of unanswered questions. What kind of questions were asked by the Illinois utility board? I don't know. I haven't had a chance to research that. The, my other question is, what did what did, what did Dakota Access file in South Dakota and North Dakota? Mm -hmm. uh, because I'm not, you know, it's, it's, I was surprised. There must be something in Illinois law that requires them to actually ask permission instead of just coming in and saying, we're going to do this. But I think, um, I think there is enough uncertainty at the staffing level at the utilities board to, um, to make them want more information. They, 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 they seem to think that the questions that Bold Iowa is asking are reasonable. Again, they're not saying that, all right, but what they're doing is they're giving, People who want to file uh, inquiries to the board or challenges to what Dakota Access wants to do, they're giving them more time to make those to file those um, those uh, complaints, those uh, those inquiries. Um, they're also asking Dakota Access to come back with more information, and so yeah. um, I think you know I, I think this bodes well for those of us who have concerns about this. Um, bodes well in what in what sense? Uh, that the utilities board is not just saying, okay, we're, you know, you, you told us you're going to do it, fine, go for it. You know, that they're actually wanting more information, that they're wanting to give the public more time to, uh, to inquire, to question. We'll see what they do with the, the request for a public hearing. Now, one other thing that I'm not sure about, they say they want these changes, this, this increased uh, flow, they're calling it, they're calling it uh, optimization, at the Cambridge site, which is about the midpoint of the pipeline through Iowa. But I cannot believe they're, they're not going to come back and ask for similar, quote, improvements at other locations across the state. Mm -hmm. I don't think one, I don't think increasing the, um, the, uh, the ability to pump more oil through Iowa at one location is going to do it. You've got to have more than just one place where you're optimizing that, uh, that pressure. So we'll see. Well, I guess my main concern, just as a layperson here, would be that the more oil that's flowing through the pipeline, the more uh, severe any sort of breach of the pipeline would be because you've got that flow there and it's just going to exacerbate whatever the spill is going to be. Are they offering, or not offering, shouldn't they be mandated then to increase the bond that they have with the state as inadequate as it is? That's another really good question, Charles. You should be you should be sending a letter to the utilities board. Yeah, well, yeah. I think it's a pretty <laughs> obvious question. It, it's it's one that I don't think has been asked yet, but it's a very mm -hmm. good question. And that's part of the problem. I mean, that, that's, I think, why you want to have a more public airing of this proposal is because 
a lot of these concerns haven't been asked. And sure, mm-hmm. I mean, it took a lot of effort to get Dakota access to increase the amount of money it was willing to put up for a bond. I mean, they wanted originally just to do $250,000. That's it. I remember that. Uh, and it was they were finally compelled to do $25 million. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know that's quite a quite a difference, right? And so you like you said, if there if there if there's more oil flowing through the pipeline, I mean, and yeah, not only does that increase the possibility that you would have the probability that you'll have a bigger oil spill, but I think the additional pressure, the heat, the impact on on the joints, mm-hmm. uh, especially where it crosses underwater, because those those pipes dip down quite a ways to get across the streams and rivers in Iowa, mm-hmm. and especially at those points, are you not increasing the risk of an oil spill? And that's, you know, and I understand why that might be somebody's biggest concern. And it's a big concern to me. But my biggest concern is, and we were, I mean, the, the existing flow is the equivalent of about 30 coal-fired power plants. Mm-hmm. And so doubling it is another 30 coal-fired power plants, increasing the amount of carbon emissions at a time when everything science is telling us is that we have to head the other direction and fast. And so, you know, from a climate point of view, this is... This is another nail in our coffin, I, and I, I mean that very literally. Well, you know, we've talked about this before, which is that um, the the main impediment to uh, the pipeline industry is to make it increasingly expensive for them to use this modality of transferring, you know, uh, the petroleum original product. Um, obviously. Their scheme is they know the end's coming at some point. Right. And they're going to extract as much as they can out of their present assets because otherwise they become stranded assets in the future, which they all know it has to be factored in because they will eventually be stranded assets. But they, the but they have to, Dakota Access has to basically ignore science and decide that its own no, then it's personal not gain is proper. It's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, what I'm saying, it's um, profit. Gain is more important than human survival. I mean, which is, I mean, that's basically what they're saying. Well, that's what all the oil and gas yeah. extractive industries yeah. are saying. Yeah. I don't think Dakota Access is unique among them. Yeah. Um, and of course, none of this will advantage Iowans to any degree, right? Because they're not going to rebuild the pipeline. Right. And I guess whatever modifications to the pumping plant are needed are hardly going to be well, and, uh, expensive you know, to make. And another big concern is, I mean, Dakota Access sold this pipeline on the premise that. We, Americans need oil independence. And now it's clear that the U.S. is becoming the largest exporter of oil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, Energy Transfer Partners, the parent company of Dakota Access, actually opened an office in Beijing mm. just, just last month. Right. And so, you know, <laughs> what, what, how, how much of this oil is going to China? You know, well, right, right now, right now, about 2.5 to 3 million gallon or barrels a day are being exported. I don't know what percentage of those are coming through the Dakota Access pipeline, mm-hmm. but that's a lot. That's a big and, and 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 presumably, nearly all of this additional oil is going to be going to export. Right. Well, I mean, that was the argument you made in terms of the court case, which is right. it, it's not even something for the United States per se. It's simply right. for a, a limited number of refiners and exporters. And I'm wondering how, how the utilities board will begin to regard climate change in this conversation because, uh, you know, the, the Supreme Court just ruled against the landowners and the Iowa Sierra Club, the lawsuit that alleged that eminent domain should not have been used to build the pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, and, and the ruling was uh, basically five to two. Uh, but Justice Mansfield, writing for the majority, uh, said, and I quote, we recognize that a serious and warranted concern about climate change underlies some of the opposition to the Dakota Access Pipeline. You know, Mansfield basically, the, the court basically says, okay, we understand that climate change is a problem. Well, the, the, so the, that, the question becomes, what is the uh, general good that we're talking about here? Eminent domain is about... Uh, the general good. Public good, yes. Public good. So the public good at some point in some case needs to be determined to be reversing climate change or at least keeping it at the present level. Yeah, because somehow they were able to argue and convince the utilities board and convince the Supreme Court that there is a public benefit to flowing this oil across Iowa. Well, because the public benefit is to economic interests. At what point will we have a more expansive view of public good of the commons yeah. that says not having a bespoiled planet yeah. is a public good? 
Yeah. So again, so many unanswered questions. Um, you know, uh, Dakota Access also talks about growing demand from shippers. Well, you know, how how much of a how many of the shippers that they claim want to use their pipe to transport this additional oil? How many of those are actually affiliates of energy transfer partners? Right. How, them, how how much of that is basically in the family? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and and we don't know that they um, they also they also talk about uh, having to add more what's called DRA drag reducing agent. Mm -hmm. to the pipeline to accommodate the additional yeah, flow. Yeah, the, the mystery chemicals that uh, yeah, they how, use to solubilize all Yeah, this. how good could that be for us? I mean, right. what, what if that, you know, and, what, and how, to what extent does that change the composition of what's flowing through there? I mean, mm -hmm. There's so many unanswered questions. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased that the Utilities Board has agreed that we need more information. We'll see where that goes. Yeah. Anyway. Well, stay tuned. Stay tuned, folks. Hey, thanks for tuning in to today's Fallon Forum. This is Ed Fallon. Uh, with uh, Dr. Charles Goldman broadcasting from Lorena, 1260 AM and 96.5 FM in Des Moines, Iowa.